Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brotmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll go to Vizcaya Museum and Gardens in Miami, which was originally the palatial estate of agricultural industrialist James Deering. And the house itself is really an adaptation of European traditions brought to this subtropical climate. So it's not a copy, it's not a pastiche, it's this really sort of unique integration of art, artifacts and architecture across hundreds of years. We'll discuss an article from the Florida Historical Quarterly on the Ocoee Massacre of 1920. Hoffman and Strom interpret Ocoee as a microcosm of local and national factors that explode into violence. And we'll talk about black pioneers in Apopka. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Just blocks from the bustling urban setting of downtown Miami is an oasis of classical beauty in a serene and idealized natural setting. Known today as Vizcaya Museum and Gardens, the 40-room mansion surrounded by acres of meticulously landscaped gardens was originally the home of industrialist James Deering. As early as the 1890s, the Deering family started wintering in St. Augustine. James Deering's parents later moved to Coconut Grove, which would become part of Miami. Mark Osterman is Guiding Programs Manager at Vizcaya Museum and Gardens. James Deering was what's known as an agricultural industrialist. Um, his firm created agricultural farming equipment across the United States. It became one of the largest um, manufacturing firms in the entire world. He was vice president of the firm, International Harvester. He was very interested in technology, so the construction of Vizcaya um, includes an integration of sort of the highest levels of building technology during the day, but that's all camouflaged within the design of the home, which was also meant to look about 400 years old. In 1908, at the age of 49, Deering retired from the International Harvester Company and initiated his plans to create the palatial Vizcaya estate. Deering's Gilded Age display of incredible wealth in Florida would rival the San Simeon Castle built by William Randolph Hearst in California. It's really unique. It's Italian inspired mainly on the exterior of the home, but if uh, when you're on the interior, especially the central courtyard that has Spanish influence or what would call Mediterranean influence. Um, and the house itself is really an adaptation of European traditions brought to this subtropical climate. So it's not a copy, it's not a pastiche, it's this really sort of unique um, integration of art, artifacts and architecture across hundreds of years um, to create this, this incredibly unique property. 
Construction on Vizcaya began in the fall of 1913 and Deering moved into the home on Christmas Day 1916. Deering wanted all of the latest technology available incorporated into the home, including a telephone, but he had architect F. Burl Hoffman Jr. design a structure that appeared to be about 400 years old. It would take until 1921 to complete the fantastic Vizcaya Gardens. Mark Osterman. Well, the gardens were designed by Diego Suarez. He was a landscape architect who worked on the project along with uh, Paul Chalfin, who was the chief designer of the overall project and closely with Deering. Um, D Diego Suarez was Colombian born but Italian trained landscape architect. So the, the gardens themselves are deeply influenced by um, Italian estate gardens. Um, ranging from the 1600s through the 1800s. Deering spent years buying artwork and objects to be carefully placed both inside his mansion and throughout his classical gardens. Deering was interesting because he didn't collect uh, pieces for, per se, their provenance or what might be considered their monetary value. He was interested in how they would be integrated into the overall aesthetic of the estate. So rather than say what would be a highlight of the collection, pieces were purchased um, solely for the purpose of that integration and this overall aesthetic of having this patina of age and antiquity. So the house is filled with antiquities, but Deering also commissioned contemporary artists of the day to do pieces throughout the home. Alexander Calder was one of them. His sculptures um, adorned the barge, which is the stone boat um, in Biscayne Bay that fronts the what some might consider the back of the house, but what Deering also often considered the front of the home. So the house is this unique combination between what would have been contemporary art of the day and antiquities. But again, the idea was for an overall integration um, of these aesthetics for an overall feel. Deering wanted to integrate Florida nature into his carefully designed estate, as well as selected non-indigenous plants. Mark Osterman. Yes, so an extreme challenge because you can't take uh, an Italian uh, formal garden and simply place it here in a subtropical climate. So there was a lot of uh, experimentation that took place. Deering was interested in um, preservation and conservation of the environment uh, as well as his half-brother. They did experiments um, and propagation of plants. So there was a lot of trial and error here. Uh, there were places that were designed, specifically uh, a rose garden, but the roses could not grow in this climate. There was uh, an aspect of the gardens titled the secret garden, which was made specifically for orchids, but again, it could not accommodate uh, orchids in the high level of humidity and heat. So those are some of the challenges um, that happened. And throughout until today, we still experiment with our horticultural department on best ways to look at historical precedent to have the gardens as they were intended to be when Deering was here, but at times and when necessary, introduce other plants that might thrive well in this type of environment because of advances in research and technology that we have. The elaborate gardens of Vizcaya express the classical ideals of balance, symmetry, and rational design. The meticulously manicured shrubbery, trees, plants, and flowers are augmented by man-made structures intended to add to the beauty of the natural surroundings. The most unique outdoor structure at Vizcaya is a piece of fantasy architecture called the barge sitting in the water in front of the mansion. And that's aptly put. It's also known in terms of uh, garden design as a folly. 
So throughout the gardens are a series of follies. These are sort of unexpected moments. They could be sculptural, they could be a fountain piece, but they typically service as endpoints or transition points within the garden. So the gardens were designed as, uh, essentially as outdoor spaces or rooms. Um, and the barge serviced as one of those, and it's one of the most unique and grand follies of uh, a formal garden. It, it is considered sort of an extension of the exterior spaces and the garden itself. The barge was originally adorned with shrubbery and fountains and had a small summer house on board. Today, the structure is the least well-preserved aspect of the estate. Deering's grand attempt to control nature was challenged by nature itself on multiple occasions. A hurricane in 1926 and two in 1935 severely damaged the estate, leading to extensive repairs of the gardens. In 1992, Hurricane Andrew impacted the property, particularly the barge. In 2005, Hurricanes Katrina and Wilma further damaged the barge and caused water intrusion into the home. Deering did not live to see the destruction to his carefully designed estate. No, he was here less than 10 years. He passed away during um, a cruise on his way back from Paris to New York in 1925, which was unfortunate. Um, but he did enjoy his winters here, starting from, say, 1916 through 1925. In 1951, Deering's nieces, who were his heirs, sold the Vizcaya estate to Dade County and donated the interior furnishings of the house. The property opened as a museum the following year. Deering neither married nor had children. Um, he, his heirs were his nieces, the daughters of his half-brother, Charles Deering. Uh, Charles had a, an estate known as a Deering estate, which still exists today, uh, further south Miami. The heirs kept the estate for a while and then had the intention of turning it into a private museum. But uh, between maintenance and cost, it was sort of untenable and very difficult. Before Vizcaya opened as a museum, much of the sprawling estate was sold off. Mark Osterman. It encompassed close to 100, I think 150 acres. Um, when Deering's heirs eventually conveyed the property to um, Miami-Dade County with the understanding that it would be utilized as either a museum or a park in perpetuity. Prior to that, part of the land was sold to the Archdiocese of Miami and some of it to um, private developers. That land is now developed. Uh, most of that land to the south of the property originally was what was called the Lagoon Gardens. And the idea is that as you went through the formal gardens, uh, the environment would become less formal and you'd sort of enter this sort of fantasy landscape. So it was a series of islands and bridges that people could traverse either through boat or, or walking, but less formalized in terms of how they were kept. With that said, they were still um, landscaped and designed. And the other aspects of the property were across what's known as South Miami Avenue. Those were part of the Vizcaya Village, which was a place where staff lived, farming functions, took place, that village helped make the estate somewhat self-sustainable. So agricultural functions took place over there. So part of that area that was used as a pasture and for general uh, farming and agriculture was sold off. Mark Osterman says there are constant challenges to maintaining Vizcaya Museum and Gardens and making the facility relevant to contemporary visitors. They're immense. So essentially, 
not to be too blunt, the property is in a constant state of decay. So it's now about 100 years old, and most of the antiquities range either from, can be 100 to 500, 1,000 years old, depending upon the object. So the challenges are huge. In terms of curatorial, a lot of the challenges go back to, what do we want to do here? How do we want to interpret this space to the public? How do we make this place of value um, to the public? And how do we also make a historic home a place that's dynamic and changing and not static and sort of frozen in time? So we do have a contemporary arts program here that's headed up by our curatorial and collections division. And one of the other large challenges that we have is conservation. So how do we preserve and conserve not just the objects and antiquities, but the house itself? One of the nuances to that is that the home was originally built to look as if it was hundreds of years old. So when you conserve either a column in the home or even any of this statuary or stonework out here, there needs to be this middle ground because it's meant to have this patina of age. So how much is cleaned and how much is not, how much is really put that back together are, are decisions that need to be made by the conservation team and collections managers. Modern visitors to Vizcaya can be amazed by the excessive splendor of America's Gilded Age in Florida and contemplate the illusion of control over our natural environment. One of the bigger ideas that we hope our guests come away with is this idea that Vizcaya is this adaptation of European traditions placed in this unique subtropical and Miami context and sort of understand what that is and how it came about. As we're moving forward, we're also looking at uh, or thinking about this idea, why does Vizcaya matter? We don't have that one grand answer, but we are considering ways to look at that and think about um, using the lens of preservation to sort of approach everything we do. Um, and it's not preservation in the sort of small terms, understanding you preserve an object so it sustains itself. It's preservation that is a conceptual idea that can be applied on a broad base to all different types of communities. And our other main initiative in terms of visitation and interpretation is to outreach to local visitors. We currently have about 70% of our daily visitorship is from people out of town. So we're looking at ways to engage the local community and become a community resource. Mark Osterman is Guiding Programs Manager at Vizcaya Museum and Gardens in Miami. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers, subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Trouble of the world Trouble of the world Trouble
Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, the year 2020 marked the 100th anniversary of one of the most shameful events in Florida history, the Ocoee Massacre, on November 2nd and 3rd, 1920. Much academic and public attention has been given to the event and its meaning over the past year. Has the Florida Historical Quarterly published on the Ocoee Massacre? Yes, it has. In the summer of 2014, the FHQ published an article by Carly Hoffman, a student at Rollins College, and her mentor, Dr. Claire Strom, titled A Perfect Storm, The Ocoee Riot of 1920. For those who may not be familiar with the event, Ocoee was a rural community in West Orange County, now a thriving city of over 48,000 people. On election day, 1920, which was a presidential election year, Mose Norman, a prominent black citizen of the community, attempted to vote. He was denied the ballot. He left and returned to make a second attempt. Accounts vary as to the level of threats or violence that occurred at the polling place, but Norman left, pursued by a group intent on violence. Norman went to the home of Julius July Perry, another prominent black man, during a confrontation, two white men were killed by gunfire, and July Perry was wounded and arrested. All the other residents in the house escaped. Treated for his wound and taken to the jail in Orlando, Perry was removed from his cell by a mob and lynched. Carloads of white men, estimated by some accounts at 250 men, descended on the black neighborhoods of Ocoee. That night of November 3rd, gunfire and arson killed an unknown number of Black citizens and destroyed 22 houses, two churches, and a Masonic lodge. Blacks fled for their lives, and those remaining were warned to sell their property and leave or risk a similar fate. So African Americans left Ocoee, and it became known as a sundown town where Black people shouldn't be after sundown, right? Exactly. Numerous oral histories attest to the concerns Orange County Blacks had about Ocoee as they related their unwillingness to even pass through the town at all. Some talk about driving around the town and going out of their way to avoid it. Blacks did not reside in Ocoee until the 1980s. Today, the city has two Black city council members. Hoffman and Strom place the events in Ocoee in a larger context of economic opportunity, contemporary national racial violence, and the disfranchisement of Black voters. Blacks in Ocoee had prospered with uh, approximately one-third owning their own homes and some owning farmland on which they produced vegetables and citrus. In addition, prominent Blacks like July Perry controlled access to black labor to work in the groves, an affront to the tenets of white supremacy. Blacks registered to vote in large numbers in 1920. In an effort to prevent Blacks from casting ballots, voting in Florida also required the payment of a poll tax. And Mary McLeod Bethune urged potential voters to eat your bread without butter, but pay your poll tax. 
the KKK was reinstituted in 1915 and Klan members marched in Jacksonville, Daytona and Orlando in the days before the election to warn blacks to stay home on election day or risk violence. Finally, only the previous year, the nation had been roiled by some 60 episodes of racial violence in cities across the United States, concentrated in the period June to September, and was labeled by James Weldon Johnson as the Red Summer. Hoffman and Strom interpret Ocoee as a microcosm of local and national factors that explode into violence, or as they phrased it, a perfect storm. This article figured prominently in the research materials that a number of organizations used in 2020 in their exhibits and presentations on the Okoe Massacre. If people want to read this Florida Historical Quarterly article on the Okoe Massacre, where can they find it? They can find it in volume 93, number one, summer of 2014. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. This is Florida Frontiers. Research is currently underway on the African-American community in Apopka. Holly Baker is Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. She has this report. After the Civil War, a former slave named Sarah Mead encouraged black families to move to Apopka, Florida, a community northwest of Orlando, to take advantage of economic opportunities in the citrus and farming industries. I recently spoke to Apopka Historical Society president and Apopka native, Francina Boykin, about early black settlers of Apopka and how they supported one another and sustained business relationships during the Jim Crow era. A woman who was a former slave settled in what is known as Mead's Bottom. Mead's Bottom was named after Sarah Mead and Lindsay Mead. They were husband and wife. Uh, Sarah and her husband homesteaded in the area now that is being developed into Apopka Town Center because Sarah came to Apopka from via Jacksonville. And Sarah introduced a great percentage of the early black settlers to the location. She sold supplies, she had a commissary, anything that the early black settlers needed during the Jim Crow era, African-American families in Florida faced many obstacles. Their freedoms were limited by discriminatory laws and the Ku Klux Klan, who were terrorizing African-Americans locally and all over the South. Between 1900 and 1930, Florida had the highest per capita rate of lynching in the country. Despite oppressive conditions, the African-American business community of Apopka, Florida managed to thrive. One prominent family that prospered in Apopka during that time was the Gladden family. Encouraged by Sarah Mead, Michael Gladden Sr. moved to Apopka from Jacksonville around the year 1910, 
with his wife Elizabeth and their two young sons, Michael Jr. and William, and they opened Gladden's General Store. The Gladden's eldest son, Michael Gladden Jr., had a dream to become a doctor, but when Gladden Sr. died from illness in 1924, he returned home from Morehouse College, a historically black men's college in Atlanta, Georgia, to take over the family general store in Apopka. While Michael Gladden Jr. ran the general store, his brother William operated a popular shoe repair shop, Gladden Shoe Hospital, across the street. They made so many contributions to this community, and their businesses were not just for the whites or for the blacks, they were for both. You know, they provided both brothers. There was another brother, his name was William Gladden uh, Sr. Uh, he was the owner, operator of the shoe hospital. You know, people say he always he was always saving souls, <laughs> uh, souls on shoes, that is, and uh, probably others too, but they brought so much. They did so much in this community. When you say Gladdens, their name and their legacy lives forever. Besides running the general store, Michael Gladden Jr. also operated a laundromat in Apopka for many years. In 1963, Gladden was also one of the founders of the Washington Shore Savings and Loan in Orlando, the first black-owned bank in Florida. Everybody traded and did business with Mr. Gladden. He probably knew every detail about every family because you didn't get through unless you went through Mr. Gladden. If Mr. Gladden said it was okay, it was okay. And being the store was located on, Mike, it's now Michael Gladden Boulevard, but it was 9th Street, but it's the main thoroughfare to Okoye, Apopka Okoye. So he would have done a lot of trading or people from Okoye would have traded with him because of his location. And so, you know, he was a man to look up to. In 1982, Michael Gladden Jr. died at the age of 83. Ninth Street, where his general store was located, was renamed Michael Gladden Boulevard in his honor. Gladden's general store was torn down in 2003. Before its demolition, Francina Boykin was given permission to retrieve items from the building. She found that Mr. Gladden kept three safes full of the records, deeds, receipts, valuables, and important paperwork for not only his family, but for other black families in Apopka. Francina Boykin. I have in my possession now many Gladden artifacts. I call it the Gladden Collection. I had the opportunity to go into the store before it was demolished. It was heartbreaking, but I retrieved as many items as I could, and they got a safe cracker to open the safes. And in those safes were volumes of documents, deeds, he kept their money, other valuables. He would put money up for safekeeping because you had to realize black people didn't believe in banks. And so uh, Mr. Gladden was their banker. He was their realtor. I even have a um, poll tax receipt that Michael Gladden Sr. had paid his poll taxes in 1920. So those are the kind of items that were in Mr. Gladden's safe. And I really appreciate that he left that behind so that someone could still tell his story. The records Francina Boykin saved from Gladden's General Store have been preserved in the Carol E. Mundy Collection at the University of Central Florida in Orlando and at the Museum of the Apopkins, located at 122 East 5th Street in Apopka, Florida. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker. 
public history coordinator for the Florida Historical Society, and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. You can also listen as a podcast or find us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Connie Lester and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Stay safe and have a great week. I'm Ben Brokmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.